Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome everyone to Spark My Muse. I'm welcoming back Mark Burroughs, who has been a guest, and we've done a number of books on the podcast before, Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart, Meditations for the Restless Soul, Meister Eckhart's Book of Secrets, uh, Meditations on Letting Go and Finding True Freedom, which is a beautiful book I go back to again and again, The Chance of Home, these are poems by Mark, and at some point we'll go to 99 Psalms by Said today, but there's a new Meister Eckhart book of darkness and light, Meditations on the Path of the Wayless Way, that's really been touching me. This is also done with John M. Sweeney, and we'll get to this today. And then there's also a little bit of a surprise. I wasn't really expecting this this bilingual book, The Wandering Radiance, Selected Poems of Hilda Domine. Maybe we could tackle that first, because it's sort of an unusual story hers is an unusual story oh absolutely well hilda hilda domain is is really one of the most remarkable voices from from the last century i mean she was born in 1909 and uh, died in 2006 so she lived almost a century and what a century it was she was jewish and she was born and raised in the city of cologne along the rhine river the lower rhine as the Germans would say, and realized uh, as a student in 1932, she heard Hitler give an address in Berlin. And she and a group of students had been reading Mein Kampf because they knew that that had come out six years earlier. And they knew that Hitler was already on the rise. And when they when she heard him speak, she immediately decided she, she had to leave Germany because she knew that when elected, which seemed sure, he would follow through on what he was saying, which was to cleanse Germany of so-called impure races um, above all the Jewish people. So she went to Italy and eventually had to flee Italy for the same reason when Mussolini came to power and uh, made her way to England. And when France capitulated to Germany in 1940, she and many of the Jews who'd been able to get out of Germany and were in southern England left because they were quite convinced that the English couldn't hold off the Nazi war machine. She she sailed to, to uh, Canada and was re- refused entrance. And the ship went to New York Harbor and was refused entrance, visa. And eventually ended up in the Caribbean and um, was taken in in the Dominican Republic. So her name was Hilde Löwenstein. And she married in 1935 and became Hilde Palm. But when she returned to Germany, and one of the few Jewish um, refugees who escaped the Holocaust to return uh, in 1954 as an act of homage to the Dominican Republic. She changed her name to Domine and, um, and is known as Hilde Domine. Um, 
really a remarkable poet of exile, of uh, the yearning for home, for homeland, and, and, and a woman who really in some ways captured the mood of reconciliation in those difficult years, 1950s, 60s, 70s. When I went to Germany in, 19, in the late 1970s, she was already quite prominent as a poet and as a writer on culture. And she was convinced that the only hope that we had as civilization, as civilizations really, as cultures, was to live with forgiveness toward each other. Um, she took a lot of criticism from some of her Jewish uh, colleagues of her generation for going back to Germany. They, do, they just couldn't understand it, and some of them were unforgiving because they felt that she had validated the German horror by returning to that place. And she was very, very straightforward in saying, no, this is the only hope we have, to give one another what she called the second chance. And so she lived her life offering this second chance, not just to Germans, but to people struggling with their own traumas, with their own trials and tribulations. And her poems came from that place of pain and trauma, and they repeatedly, she said, I'm the poet of the nevertheless. In the midst of all of these things we face, there always is some, some margin of hope, some crack in the door that lets the light in. And that's what she was after with her poems. Well, one of them that she dedicated to her father after he died, he was a prominent lawyer in Cologne and a public defendant. He took on hopeless cases that he thought needed to have legal representation. And of course, when, he, when they fled in 1933, early 1933, her parents, that is, uh, to England, and they ended up living in, in London with friends for a while and then in a little village in Dorset. And of course, for anyone who's gone through this, I mean, he was a prominent figure in Cologne society. And of course, as a refugee, he was nobody. He, he, he couldn't, he struggled to speak English. He couldn't practice his, his profession. And really, it was because of the generosity of family and friends and the English people that they were able to survive. But she, she wrote a little poem called Exile that she dedicated to her father. And it goes like this. The dying mouth struggles to find the rightly spoken word in a foreign tongue. Der sterbende Mund müht sich um das richtig gesprochene Wort einer fremden Sprache. It's a little poem, but there's so much pathos in this poem that to the end of his life, he was still struggling to be able to express himself. And for those of you who've ever found yourself not simply visiting as a tourist, well, that too, but particularly if you, you find yourself living among people whose language you don't understand, and they don't understand your language, you struggle for the littlest gestures of connection. It could be a hand gesture, a, a look in your eye, uh, a smile, a tear. And when that connection is made, you feel like the whole world is born, uh, born again, in a sense, for you. And in that moment of connecting, and clearly, you know, it's it's a struggle. Um, and she recognized that so, so beautifully uh, in honoring her father. Yeah. There's the poem on page 15, pulling landscape. Maybe you can. Oh, um, that's a powerful yeah, one. Yeah, I like that one. Maybe you can explain it or. 
uh, read it and yeah. go into it a bit. Let me read it first. Mm -hmm. the, the polling landscape, see in the Landschaft. And it's a strange image because, you know, we usually think of a landscape as something that's out there. And she's imagining that somehow a landscape could also be pulled away from us. That is, that, that we stay rooted. She's imagining us as a tree rooted, but the landscape is taken away. And of course, if you've lived, uh, if you've been exiled from a familiar place, if you've had to flee from your own homeland, you'll understand this poem on another level. But let me read the poem. Pulling Landscape. One must be able to depart and yet remain like a tree, as if the roots remained in the ground, as if the landscape pulled and we stood still. One must hold one's breath until the wind abates and the strange air around us begins to stir, until the game of light and shadows, green and blue, shows its old pattern and we find ourselves at home wherever that might be and can sit down and lean back as if against the grave of our mother. And that, that, those lines, I mean, I, I wonder, you who've just heard this poem, what lines stood out to you? But every time I read this poem, it's those lines three quarters of the way down. And we find ourselves at home wherever that might be. I mean, this, is, this is a poem of longing to feel connected again when the landscape has been pulled away, when the familiar things have been taken away. In her case, because she was exiled from Germany, she had to flee her own country. But I think this poem could touch people who had the landscape of their healthy life pulled away by terrible diagnosis or the, the loss of a, a loved one or the loss of a relationship or something that, that threatens to undo us. And she's suggesting here that we can still live like a tree, still rooted in the, in the ground, still grounded in the earth, despite these losses, uh, despite these changes. Marvelous poem. Yeah, there's, there's a lot packed into a small, <laughs> a small package there. A lot of times uh, in yeah. your work and there's, um, there's a lot of yeah. like peeling back. I noticed as I was reading them, you know, you read it again and then you see something you see oh, absolutely. And these are, you know, they're deceptively simple poems, Lisa. Most of them are little poems. She wrote a few longer poems early on. I'll read one in a moment. But many of them are short poems, and, and they, they startle you because you read it and you think, oh, okay, I, I think I got that. But then you realize, no, no, I didn't. There are, there are depths here that I, I didn't begin to see. Let, let me read one called A Different Birth, Andra Geburt. This is a poem, she didn't start writing poems until she was in her late 40s. And it happened when her mother died in 1952. And when her mother died, she, she somehow felt that she needed to use language to connect with her, with her roots, with her identity. She was living in the Dominican Republic. And by that point, she was writing both fluently in Spanish and, of course, in German. And continued to write in Spanish and German throughout her life. But this book, this poem, is a poem of her own vocation, and it reads like this. Mother, your death 
is our second birth, more naked, more helpless than the first, because you aren't here and don't take us by the arm to console us from ourselves. Mother, your death is our second birth, more naked, more helpless than the first, because you aren't here and don't take us by the arm to console us from ourselves. It's a poem without punctuation, I should note, for those of you who are simply hearing. There are no commas, there's no period. She capitalizes the beginning of the second stanza, because you aren't here, so you know you're in another thought there. But this sense that somehow when we lose our mother, and I think for her it was, she lost her father a few years before then, but something for her, it was a deeper loss because her mother was the last parent, because her mother had given birth to her, and because her mother was the one who embraced her and held her when she wept and was there for her as a little girl when she came home from school. Her father was working, so he didn't have that connection. But that last, those last lines have always puzzled me in a way that continues to awaken something in me, because you aren't here. And, and the plural sense, because you aren't here, and don't take us by the arm to console us from ourselves. From ourselves. That's what a parent can do, I think, in ways that almost no one else can. Because they understand something about us. And they, they birthed us into this, into this earth, into this life. And we need consoling from ourselves. Oh, we need consoling from others, too. But sometimes we need consoling from what doesn't work in our life, right? From what's unsettled in us. It's such an interesting turn of phrase that actually I've run into more this year than any other year because I was hmm. um, reading um, Dr. Nicole Perla's book, um, and it's about it's about trauma and recovery and um, different things like that. She's a, a therapist. But she talks about reparenting ourselves when we have mm. had emotionally inconsistent parents or emotionally immature parents, and that mm. that's what a, that's what a good parent will do. They will um, give us what we need, and then we learn from them mm. how to treat ourselves. If, if it's not there, mm. we have to learn how to parent ourselves from scratch, mm. essentially. Uh, and it, it really hit hard, you know. Um, because that's exactly what's happening. And so she's mm -hmm. she's understanding that loss, uh, that there is no one to do that now. You know? um, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But it has to be done. And no one else can do that for us. I mean, in that sense, I think you're right, Lisa. When you've lost your parents, you have to reach into a place in yourself that connects also with them. I mean, in a way, they're with you, even in their, perhaps, in their stumbling inadequacies, they're still with you in the journey you have to make to find that freedom in yourself, that dignity, that beauty in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there is something to be said about um, befriending ourselves, that it's a struggle for, for people, some people more than other people about befriending mm. ourselves and, and not being cruel and not being unkind to ourselves. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, that, that yeah. can really um, 
a parent can, t can either teach us that well, or maybe there's gaps there, or maybe there's trauma there. Mm -hmm. But um, she speaks to a very primal, you know, this, these, these memories go very, very deep back to the beginning. Oh, yeah, maybe they really do. And in some ways, they carry us back to way before we have any memory. Because we don't have memories of our earliest experiences. We, we have maybe a body memory. Yeah. But that's something yeah. different. It's not a conscious memory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those, those deep body memories, often traumatic memories, are the ones that we spend our whole life trying to understand, trying to reconcile ourselves to, sometimes trying to free ourselves from, really. Yeah. It reminds me of the poem on um, page 69. Uh, about mm. instruction and um, mm. there's a little bit of a parallel there for me as we are the, the two sort of connect for me um, mm. maybe would you mind reading that one sure instruction everyone who leaves teaches us a bit about ourselves the most the most precious instruction at the deathbed all the mirrors as clear as a lake after heavy rain before the hazy day blurs the images again. Only once do they die for us, never again. What would we ever know without them, without the reliable scales that were laid upon when we have been abandoned? These scales without which nothing has weight. We whose words fail, we forget it. And they, they can't repeat their teaching. Your death or mine, the next instruction, so bright, so clear, that it will soon become dark. Oh, what a poem. What struck you about that poem when you read it? The idea of, about, about the next instruction, and I'm not even sure mm. I understand that it will soon become dark. I don't know that I understand this poem, mm. but it's... Mm -hmm. um, It, it really leaves me sort of awestruck and, and I'm not sure because there's such profundity to it. There's such, um, mm. it's about death and learning and instruction. And um, there's mm -hmm. something about grief that's tied in there for me as I read it. And so mm. um, I not, can't even unravel it into language yet. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes a poem like this so powerful because you, you feel it more than you can explain it or understand it you know that there's something that touches so deeply that you can't quite even put it into words. And, and, and even those, the first lines, everyone who leaves teaches us a bit about ourselves. And, and of course, it ends up being a poem about death, about what happens when people leave us in death. They, they teach us a little bit about ourselves, not just about them, but we learn something about ourselves. And perhaps those last lines, your death or mine, the next instruction, so bright, so clear, that it will soon become dark. Maybe that darkness is where we can actually see the light that comes to us, where we can see the brightness. Um, because death is, in a way, you know, what Mary Oliver in one of her very famous poems calls it, that cottage of darkness. We don't know what death is. It, it's hidden from us. But there is something radiant in the midst of it. And, you know, I, as when I lost my father a few years ago, I mean, I, in some ways it was, it was a sort of an 
inconsolable loss for me because we were very close to each other. But in a way, it wasn't a final loss either. There was something, it awakened something in me that I probably needed, could only find in his death when I could no longer turn to him and lean on him and trust that he would be there with his wise words and, and his deep compassion, that that, that passed to me to, to live out or not. I mean, the, the question was an open question. W will I take that the positive legacy, the deep legacy, and, and bring it to life? I yeah. thought a lot about um, the idea that someone brought to my attention that I thought was a beautiful way to think of to think of people and their impact on us is thinking about their everlasting life that lives within mm. us, that yeah. lives in our memory and lives in our actions, that if, if they have inspired us in good ways, or sometimes yes. maybe people don't inspire us in good ways and we do the opposite even, but they have an mm -hmm. everlasting life in us and in, in the people that we influence. And oh, um, That's for sure. It, the part where it says, without the reliable scales that were laid upon, when we have been abandoned, mm. these scales without which nothing has weight. Um, mm. There's something about that that, that kind of is kindred to kind of what I'm getting at, is, is that this impact that people have, um, mm. how mm. that gets measured out in our life. And yeah. um, that you can't tell until that abandonment has come. Absolutely. Not measurable. And, no. And that line just before it, what would we ever know without them? I mean, there's just something so true about that. What would we know without without the, the lives and, and the deaths of those who've, who've been so involved in with us, who've been deeply connected to us, um, part of our life, right? We don't really know who they are when they're living, and we begin to understand them when they're not with us anymore. Um, and perhaps we can sense that they understand us at that point too, where there's no more effort to try to explain or reconcile. There's simply presence, that what you call everlasting life, their everlasting life. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm curious to know if you've dreamt about your father or talked to him in, in dreams. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's in some ways more present to me now than in the last years. He was drifting into dementia. So the last six or eight months when I would visit, he didn't really recognize me anymore. It didn't matter in a way. And I can remember just the tenderness of sitting with him as he was eating. He couldn't, eat, couldn't feed himself and feeding my father, who was, you know, 95 years old. And remembering that, of course, he had done that when I was a little boy, when I couldn't pick up a spoon or a fork. And, and the connection was just so real. There's never a day that goes by without, without my, my sense of his presence, uh, his voice, his wisdom, his laugh, his goodness. He was, he was one of the most deeply good people I've ever known. Never harbored resentments, never carried a grudge that I can remember. Forgave people who were not forgivable, people who'd done things to him uh, in, the, in his life professionally. And he had some he was a courageous man, he was a prophetic man, and he suffered for it. And uh, I never heard him say anything unkind toward people he had every right to say unkind things about. And when you meet someone like that, 
whether it's your father or your neighbor or your uncle or or whatever, they're never they're never gone when they die because you've learned something so deep and so hard to understand in any other way than when you see it embodied in the human life that you're forever changed. Hmm. I don't I know if there's about... any other the only the only one that I was hoping you might read was um I mean, there's many in here, but 173 was one. And if there's any other poem that you mm. would particularly like to read, I'm happy to. Oh, Wunsch, Wish, 173. Mm -hmm. Let me read that one, Wish. I'd like to be split open by the things I see as from a lightning bolt. I don't want them to pass by, pale, colorful. They swim on my retina. They float by into the dark place at the end of memory. What an exquisite poem. I'd like to be split open by the things I see as from a lightning bolt. I don't want them to pass by, pale, colorful. They swim on my retina. They float by into the dark place at the end of memory. Ah, that last image, they float by into the dark place at the end of memory. When, when you read that, Lisa, what, 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 what happened to you? What, what, what is that dark place at the end of memory? You know, I don't know if it's, it's like, to me, it feels like a place of oblivion, but mm -hmm. also maybe like another way to describe the soul. Yes. Um, and so I think the ambiguity is, is what I like so much. I like mm -hmm. there's, there's, um, it's open to interpretation for me and my own understanding. Mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, to put those two things together, it could be the soul or it could be oblivion. And in a way, how do we know what the difference is? And does it really matter? Does it really matter? Because in a way, whatever soul is, it's there before we begin and it's there after we in our bodies end. It doesn't just evaporate or disappear. It can't. It can't. I mean, it just, it's, it, that's a harder, you'd have to argue with me harder about to say that it disappears than to say, but it abides in ways we can't explain. Yeah, that's an amazing poem. I mean, in a way, it's a poem about wanting to be alive to the moment, too. Right? I'd like to be split open by the things I see. I don't want them to pass by. I don't want to just. I don't want to just have little glimpses now and then. I want to have my eyes wide open to this life. I want to take it all in. I want. I want it to penetrate to, to the heart of who I am. And and yes, when they float by into that dark place at the end of memory, I want to be present there too. You know, as, as watching them just recede until I can no longer see them, but they're still there. They're still there. Yeah. Let me read. Let me let me read one little poem. And because when I when I sent this collection of poems off to to the publisher, um, he's a really wonderful uh, publisher, and he's a good editor. And he looked through them and he made some suggestions about poems I might not want to include, and perhaps some that I might include because I translated almost all of her poems. There are maybe three hundred poems that she's written, and there are about one hundred thirty-five or forty in this book. 
But there's one little poem that he thought, I don't know if this one works. And it's a poem that every German who knows Hilda Domain, and that's anybody who's reading poetry or literature even, would know her. Just, just She has a similar stature, I think, to someone like Billy Collins or Mary Oliver. People who might not read poetry in general, but they, they have a Mary Oliver poem that they just love. You know, what is it you're going to do with your one wild and precious life? I don't have to say that's Mary Oliver. It's just such a part of our vocabulary today, those lines from that poem, Journey. But anyway, this is a poem like that. It's a little tiny poem. It's five lines long, and it has this strange title, Wer es könnte, who could do it? It's on page 67. Who could do it? Who could do it? Throw the world so high that the wind could pass through it. <laughs> who could do it? Throw the world so high that the wind could pass through it. It's one of those poems, again, that there is no explanation of it. It's, it's something you have to sort of experience in, in the visual image of it, to imagine throwing the world, throwing your whole life so high up into the air that it could be carried by the wind. It could be, it's an image of freedom to me. It's an image of, of being uncontained. It's something we yearn for, something every one of us yearns for, to, to have that kind of lightness of being that we could, we could in, in a sense, be like the wind carried from places we've never imagined to places we can't imagine. I mean, it's funny that when Jesus of Nazareth, you know, when he was in a conversation with this a Pharisee named Nicodemus who came to him uh, at night and wanted to find out what, was, what made this guy work, this healer, teacher, itinerant, uh, wandering preacher, well, what made him work? Because he was sure that something was special about him. It's in the, the Gospel of John. And, and Jesus says, well, you have to be born from above. You have to be born from anew or be born again. It's an ambiguous adverb. It could mean any of those things. And Nicodemus doesn't understand it. And he says, what do you mean? I have to climb back in my mother's womb. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You, you have to be... Look, people who are born like this are like the wind. You don't know where it's come from, where it's, it's come from and you don't know where it's going. But people who are made of the Spirit or carried by the Spirit are, are like the wind. I couldn't help but hear that in Hilda Domin's poem. She's Jewish, of course. She's not writing about Jesus, although Jesus was a Jew and a Jewish teacher. But she's, they're both catching something about the wind that's so essential to our longing to be, in a sense, light enough, carried by the wind, in the freedom of the wind, in the joy of the wind, the playfulness of the wind. Amid all the heavy things that, that we are burdened with in our lives, there is that longing to be free. And that's a poem of that longing to be free. That's beautiful. I appreciate that you um, would bring that up. It's a kind of a wonderful way to close out reading some of her work. and. Uh, I, I recommend this book, The Wandering Radiance, Selected Poems of Hilda Domine. Um, I will leave links to that in the show notes for this episode. And I want to make sure that we get to this other 
Mm. delightful book and part of a series of Meister Eckhart's book of darkness and light meditations on the path of the wayless way. And I just mm. want to read some of the back matter of this book. Um, there's a lot in the front of the book that I, that I was um, tempted to read too, that really goes into describing Eckhart and um, what he's up to. And <laughs> it's kind of, in my opinion, really perfect for our times because mm. we have uh, that where there is a kind of, for a lot of people, mistrust of organized religion, mm-hmm. or there's there's spirituality coming in that, that people seem to be hanging on to, but it doesn't necessarily jive with with things that are doctrinaire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a push and pull going on in some circles. And the back of this book, in part, says, this book of Meister Eckhart's meditations is for people seeking the wayless way. It is not for those looking for a simple path. This, these fresh, stunning renderings of Eckhart's writings in poetic form bring life to one of the great spiritual voices of any age. They reveal what it means to love God and find meaning in darkness. Not darkness in general, but your darkness, because it is the one thing you know something about. Without facing your darkness, you'll never know what it means to desire the light. Only when you are in the darkness, Meister says, do you have even the possibility of seeing the light. Hmm. So maybe you can introduce the book a little bit. Sure. Well, Eckhart was really a remarkable teacher and a provocative teacher and a puzzling teacher and I think an incredibly encouraging teacher. He was a Dominican. It was a relatively new order that was founded in the beginning of the 1200s, beginning of the 13th century. He was born around 1260 and died around 1328. We don't even know exactly when he died or where he's buried because he he died on the way returning back to Germany from Avignon in the south of France, where the popes at the at that time had their their center. They were they left Rome and they were living in this palace, palatial, uh, fortified little city in the in the city of Avignon. And somewhere on that path, he had gone there to defend his his teachings because he'd been accused of having of, of holding heretical thoughts, and he wanted to exonerate himself. So he appealed to the Pope and had this proceeding. We even have the, the notes of his defense, and then re- returned and died on the way, which is somehow fitting that we don't even exactly know what happened to him. I mean, he he sort of appeared quietly. Uh, we don't know exactly where he was born or the year. And he died probably in 1328 in a place where there is no known grave. But he spent his life uh, trying to help people understand that there was a deeper experience of the divine than whatever might be mediated in conventional thinking, the conventional thinking of his day, or I would say of any day. That if you just, under, if you just think about God, you've done nothing important for Eckhart, because anybody can think about God. But if that thinking has never touched the core of who you are, then it's irrelevant, no matter how right it might be, no matter how doctrinally correct it might be. It has no meaning for you. And finally, it has no reality. And so he, he, he had all kinds of ways. And he said, for instance, you have to renounce God in order to find God. And, you know, it's a strange thing to say. You have to throw God out in order to discover God. And by that, I think he meant throughout the God of your preconceptions, 
throw out this God somebody told you was necessary to hold on to and find the God who is in the very center of who you are and has always been there. He called it, he called this the little light, a little Funklein in his German, a little spark that's in every one of it. It's, it's uncreated. It's, 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 a, it's God's presence in us. And so Eckhart would say, basically, until we discover that God is always in us and that we are God, that's a shocking statement, isn't it? Until we discover that we are God, because we, 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 have, we have this, not a part of God. There is no part of God. You don't get like 1% of God or, or 0.0001%. No, you either have God in you or you don't. And Eckhart would say, you do. You have all of God in you, in that little spark that nothing can, nothing can extinguish that spark. Nothing. And, and that's where, for him, the deeper we go into the darkness, our darkness, the, the more likely it is that we'll find not some artificial light of what somebody told us about God, but we'll find that flickering light that no, nothing can take away from us. That God, God can't remove God's self from us because God is there from before we're born and will be there beyond our death. So that's an amazing teacher. So he, you know, he, he, he preached in German. He also preached in Latin, and he wrote scholastic treatises, academic treatises. He was renowned as a teacher. That's why he's called Meister Eckhart. It's the highest degree that you could earn in that day. There was no such thing as a doctorate, but to be a Meister is the, 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 the best thing you can do in any field. And he was a Meister in theology. Um, but he's best known, I think, for the sermons that he preached in German. And we have them because most of them were preached to women, to Dominican communities of nuns who were cloistered, and to a group of women who were known as the Beguines. They were, they were trouble to the church in, in Eckhart's day. People, popes and bishops, worried about these Beguines because they weren't bound by conventional vows, lifelong vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. They lived communally in many of the northern European towns and cities. They supported themselves. They had their own chapel, and they had a priest who would come and celebrate the sacraments. But they lived with a kind of autonomy that was unthinkable. I mean, it was just, as if, you know, the Virginia Woolf, a room of your own. They found a way of having a room of their own. And for that reason, they were feared and distrusted by the authorities. And Eckhart was assigned as part of his responsibility was to, to preach to these women. And I suspect that what he discovered, although he never writes about this, is that he actually, he, he would have found in them people who understood profoundly what he was saying. And he probably agreed with them more deeply than um, they needed to agree with him because he found in them something that was living this wayless way living this unconventional life and forming communities of, of encouragement, of support that were, in a sense, separate from the parish and from the, from the diocese, from the bishopric. They were almost kind of like uh, autonomous communities, really. So they're the ones who kept notes of his sermons. 
what we know of these German sermons uh, were not sermons in his own hand, but the notes of others. And uh, it's a remarkable legacy. We only have 80 or so sermons of Eckhart's, but any one of them is enough for a lifetime, really. I mean, I really mean that seriously. If you took one of his sermons and just live with that one sermon, it would be enough because there's just so much in these sermons that uh, goes deep. So when John and I wrote these, um, have written now the third book, these little poems, they're very close to Eckhart's thinking, but they're not translations from his German into our English. They're re what I often call revoicings of his essential wisdom in ways that, that are more accessible to us today. Uh, because most people won't sit down and read a whole sermon of Eckhart's. They're not easy to read. But there's a, there's a, a density in those sermons that's so rich, a deepness in those sermons. I mean, anybody who can say something like, the eye with which I see God, and the eye, E-Y-E, with which God sees me, that's one eye. One seeing, one knowing, one loving. Now, there it is. I mean, spend your life thinking about that that you think you're looking at God, and you are, perhaps. But in that looking, God is looking into your soul. God is present looking within you. That's a better way to say it. And that whatever we know of, of God, whatever we know of love, whatever we see of love, and however we live out love in our life, this is God. This is God. Uh, this is God living and loving and seeing and knowing in us. What an amazing, what an amazing way of seeing this truth. Now the book is broken down into, there's an introduction yeah. and then the sections go in the beginning, darkness, mm -hmm. embracing darkness, awakening delight, and living in radiance. Um, is there a reason why you set the book up in mm. that way? Yeah, because, you know, I think most of us know much more about darkness than we do about light. That seems counterintuitive, and it is, really. Because we imagine that our, our work in this life is to be flooded with light. And that may be true, but fundamentally, we, we live with a, a deeper intimacy of darkness, deeper familiarity of darkness. And in a sense, if, if you... This is, this is hard for modern people to understand. I mean, I, I live in a part of the, of the United States that is relatively unlit. That is, when, when the town I live in, Camden, Maine, on, this, on the shore, the har it's a little harbor town in mid-coast Maine, when they design the streetlights and so on, they put covers over all of them uh, so that there's less leakage of light up into the sky. And when you get outside of this little town, when you get into central Maine, you'll find one of the only dark sky spaces in all of the Northeast, because there are so many towns and cities that flood our atmosphere with light that you just, just don't see the skies anymore. People who've grown up in New York City, children, don't know what the stars really look like. They've never seen the Milky Way. They wouldn't know what the Milky Way is. And in, in a sense, there's, there's, I think, an analogy here to our own spiritual life, that if we always choose to, to live in artificial light, which is much more comfortable and always bathe ourselves in artificial light. It could be cheap teachings or some 
some practice that we use, which, which may be very helpful and useful, but it, it won't bring us to the deepest truth that's waiting to be discovered within us. And perhaps the one thing that does bring us there is when we collide into the darkness and discover that, that the only place to discover the light is in the darkness. I mean, Eckhart knew one of the, one of the, um, a verse from Paul, from the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, in one of his letters to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, he, he has a little midrash, like a rabbinic midrash, on the creation story. And he says, he writes that God brought forth light out of the darkness. It's an amazing preposition, out of the darkness. Now, we usually think that, you know, the purpose of light is to shine into the darkness, right? To take the darkness away. But Eckhart realized that the creation story begins in darkness and chaos. And God brings forth light, separates the light from the darkness. That's the way the Genesis story puts it. For Eckhart, this is an essential teaching. That in our deepest darkness, there is light there. And, and when we find that light that's in the darkness, well, once we made that discovery, nothing can frighten us anymore. Nothing can terrify us anymore. Yeah. So it's, it's an extraordinary teaching. And that's the way we organized this book, was to begin with darkness and to see the darkness as not necessarily an easy place to be, but a place where we discover the truth in our lives. On page 25, that's, that's a lot of what you just said there, kind of wrapped up mm. in, in a short bit. Mm. Darkness takes you. Why don't you read that for us? Why don't you read it for us? Okay. Yeah. Where darkness takes you. How is this for darkness? You are known in heaven without your face and form, because there is one image only, and it is God in whom you are truly seen. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. How is this for darkness? You're known in heaven without your face and form, because there is one image only, and it is God in whom you are truly seen. Wow. It's amazing. Ridiculously profound. And, uh... It is ridiculously profound. <laughs> and what you find, I mean, uh, you know this because you've read the other two books and you've, you've read this one. In the back of the book, we have, you know, an appendix which gives all of the sources, all of the... So if, if, if you look at that poem, Where Darkness Takes You, you'll, you can go back and find out which sermon this came from, um, which sermon inspired it. And when you turn to that sermon, you might find... You know, a line or an image, um, a phrase, or perhaps uh, a longer teaching that this distills. In this case, it's a longer teaching. Yeah. Hmm. Here's one I, I'll read. Room Enough, it's on page 65, which really carries us forth in another way. We talk and talk and talk, and all this brings us no closer to wisdom. If you wish to understand the deep truth that is in God and in yourself, keep still and listen. Become poor in yourself 
desiring nothing, knowing nothing, and possessing nothing. Only when you are empty of all your chatter will there be room enough in you to receive the gift of wisdom you long for. Now, only when we go into that dark place of silence is there enough space in us to hear the word of life, the word of love, the word of hope, the gift of wisdom, really. Yeah, there's there's some interesting um, like associated words with darkness too. Whether it's whether it's uh, emptiness or oblivion mm. or aloneness, mm -hmm. or there's like these <clears throat> companion words that sometimes go along with it. And then um, on page seventy six, light shines in darkness. It says, "Light mm. shines in darkness." John says, and Paul adds, "Virtue is perfected in weakness." What is this but God's inscrutable justice in which even the darkest of times somehow come together in the saving, blessing, and comforting of those who find themselves in trouble? Mm. Beautiful. And some of the things you were saying just a little bit ago, a few moments ago, uh, we are called out from the darkness. It's like it's a salvation mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. and a... Um, mm -hmm. I have, you know, often I'll think of if I turn on a light, it's dis dispersing darkness, or it's, it's dispelling darkness. Right. But mm -hmm. we don't often think that you can be sort of plucked out of, plucked out of yeah. the darkness, right? Um, that's right. another way of looking at it. Yeah, it's a totally different way of looking at it. And in a way, it's, a, it's I think, a, a, a remarkably affirming way, because it means that we don't have to flee from the darkness or deny it, ignore it, pretend it isn't there. Uh, and it takes courage to go into that darkness, that's for sure. And, you know, you almost need a kind of a, a warning label on this because some people will go in and never come out. I mean, they go into a deep psychological darkness and they, 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 never, they never return from it. So this is not something to do alone. And Eckhart knew that. I mean, he often, when he's preaching, writes in the plural form because nobody goes into the darkness alone. It doesn't matter how lonely you feel, you're never there alone because there are others there with you. There are others there who are also seeking to be blessed, to be saved, to be held, uh, to be comforted. They're there with you. And, of course, one of the things we discover is that Sometimes the only way we get out of the darkness is to help others in theirs uh, and open our life to, to them in the darkness that they have to, that they're facing and living with. It's, it's, also, it's also good to note that darkness is also relative and, and, a, and a perception mm. as well. So it's like, mm -hmm. is there darkness to God? I would mm -hmm. say unlikely. <laughs> Maybe darkness yeah. is for us. Uh, and then there's mm -hmm. obscurity and... Uh, mm -hmm. God is separating darkness from light, but that's something um, mm -hmm. that we're not going to be so keenly aware of. That um, we, the part of awakening to the light, and that can also happen in so many myriad of ways, too. You know, mm. Whether it's like yeah. a coming to the light, or a kind of darkness is fading and receding, or there's a lot of different mm -hmm. poetic images for 
what that could mean of awakening to the light. Absolutely. There was a theologian who went by the name of Dionysius. He's probably a Syrian monk living, scholars now say, in the, sometime in the 6th century. But he was attributed, the name Dionysius is a convert, a philosopher who's converted by Paul's uh, preaching, Paul the Apostle. But that, that, that uh, Dionysius was a central figure through the Middle Ages. Eckhart knew his writings and sometimes quotes him. And he had this notion that in a sense there is, God is a dazzling darkness, a dazzling darkness, it's an extraordinary image, a darkness that's so profoundly alive that it dazzles our eyes to the point that we can't see. Um, you know, it's, it's, Thomas Aquinas used the same image, and Thomas Aquinas is a Dominican who lived before Eckhart. Eckhart never knew him, but um, Eckhart was born in the latter years of, uh, Eckhart's born about 1260, and, and Aquinas dies in 1274, so it's unlikely they ever met. Um, but, sorry about that. Eckhart is describing darkness in a way that was familiar to Thomas Aquinas, um, and you were mentioning about the dazzling, dazzling darkness. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a great image. It comes from really from a, an earlier theologian, but it was it was an image that was um, that resounded through medieval teaching. And Eckhart knew it and drew on it. Um, but it, it it comes from the sense that when the light, if the light is so blindingly present, we're like bats. Aristotle said, we, we, we can't take that much light. And so we can live our lives most safely as bats do at night, right? They don't, they don't come out in the daytime. It's just too bright for them. And this Dionysius and Eckhart following him knew that there was something to that, that darkness is a place where we have enough light to discover our way. And we have to find that at, at the very heart of who we are, not looking for it outside of ourselves. And when we find that light within us, well, then the darkness, bring on the darkness, nothing can really overcome that, that light. Nothing can separate us from that light. Um, again, quoting that marvelous line from Paul in the letter to the Romans, nothing can separate us from this, from the light of God. I like the, uh, on page 119, yeah. Heaven refuses to keep a distance. Some imagine that heaven is immense, an idea that might seem to make sense, mm. but heaven refuses to keep a distance from all that has fled from it and taken up the lowest place of all, which is the fate of the earth and all within it, even you. Because of this, heaven renounced its vastness and gave itself entirely to the earth to make it fertile. And you dare think, and you dare to think you're not a part of this astonishing gift, the spark in you that desires God alone, which is the true, which is the true source of your one hope. Mm. Ah, that's a marvelous, marvelous image, isn't it? Mm. Heaven refuses to keep a distance from all that has fled from it. And taking up the lowest place of all. That's, that's just so deeply part of this mystical vision of Eckhart that there's no way that we can that we can remove ourselves from the divine. 
and it would it would be to renounce our own life and we can't fundamentally do that that this god is always seeking us in our lostness in our darkness in our confusion in our pain and our anguish but if you want to find god then don't try to get your life fixed but but embrace what you the pain that you feel the truth of your life and there you'll find that god is always already there and not somewhere else yeah there's so many of these little poems that you know since i wrote them or we wrote them some years ago now um, they still startle me when i when i read them i mean here's one called serenity and service that's on page 47. And this is a this is an important poem because Eckhart one might understand one might one might imagine oh I read Eckhart and I find this inner truth this inner journey this inner life and Eckhart would say of course of course that's that's here for you but this is not to in a sense choose between that and serving those in need around you and he often said things like this well if there's somebody who needs a bowl of soup right now then leave this teaching, however true it might be, and go and give them the soup that they need, right? Well, here's, here's a, little, a little poem called Serenity and Service. Some think it best to withdraw from the busy world and find an inner peace that is without distraction. But I say this, whatever serenity you find within your soul should open you to serve the needs of others, of others in their need. This is the wisdom of the wayless way that will lead you to see that inner and outer serenity and service are not two, but finally one. Don't think this, but practice it here and now. The rest will follow. And that's just so, that notion of serenity and service, this deep inner, inner awareness and an openness to the needs of those around us. These aren't two different things. You know, it's not, not that somehow you, you have your contemplative life and then you have your active life. And once you get your contemplative life together, then, then you'll know what you should do. No, you, you discover your contemplative life through serving others. And Eckhart has a famous sermon from which we drew quite a few of these poems uh, on Mary and Martha. And he reverses the way in the long tradition of uh, biblical interpretation up until Eckhart's life Usually, the way this was understood was to say, well, Martha is the active one, and Mary is a contemplative, and the contemplative is a better way. Eckhart turns it around and says, no, Mary is actually the active one who knows that she has to go deeply into the center of what's true to understand it so that she can live a life of service. And Martha... You know, the one who's busy preparing the meals and taking care of Jesus, all of that. And she complains about Mary in the, in the story. Well, Martha is, is actually the contemplative one because she discovers in the truth of what she's doing the, the deep serenity of God's presence. And so he, he, he switches this around. And that's the way he often thought and wrote was to upset our expectations to remind us that the truth is usually exactly what we don't think or what we haven't yet thought. And that whatever the truth is, 
it's about a way of living and not a way of thinking or a way of, of um, feeling. He was often called, well, there was this wonderful phrase, Lesemeister is a master of reading, in this case, reading the scriptures. And what people said about Eckhart is he was a Lesemeister who was a Lebermeister, a master of life, of how we should live. So you hear that echo, the laser is lit to read, and Leben is to live, that he was a, a master of life as much as he was a master of reading the scriptures. Is there anything you'd like people to know about books we've been talking about that we haven't covered yet, or another poem to close us out? Oh, I could certainly find another poem to close us out. I, I would say that it's been wonderful to put these two books together because on one, in one sense, they don't have anything immediately to do with each other. Hilda Domain, this contemporary Jewish, German Jewish writer, and Meister Eckhart, a medieval mystic. But I think what I've learned from talking with you in the last hour, Lisa, is that if we go deep enough into our own experience, we discover a truth that moves us beyond the categories of religion, or of doctrine, or teaching, or even of experience, that what does a 20th, early 21st century Jewish woman have to say that would be similar to a medieval preacher like Meister Eckhart? And I would say, well, they're both drawing on the same deep wellspring of wisdom. And let me close with a poem from Hilda Domain. It's the first one in this book. It's arguably one of my favorite poems of all poems. If you ask me what's your favorite poem, I'd say, well, it could be Don't Grow Weary by Hilda Domain. And I placed it first in the book for that reason. It's a very short poem again, five lines long. And this is what she says. Don't grow weary, but hold your hand out quietly to the miracle as if to a bird. Don't grow weary, but hold your hand out quietly to the miracle as if to a bird. And in a sense, that's what she spent her life doing, was trying to live gently enough, spaciously enough, graciously enough, that she could discover, as she said at one point, that the miracles are everywhere. They're all around us. They're all around us. It only takes eyes to see them. It only takes a heart open enough to welcome them, uh, and in a sense, a soul large enough to embrace them. And, and that's true for Eckhart as well as for Hilda Domain. They were voices among us that invite us to live into the depths of who we are. And the deeper we go, the closer to one another we'll find ourselves coming. And the differences that separate us will seem far less important when we come to that deep place than they do if we stay on the surfaces of our lives and argue about this political idea or that theological notion. That in the deep heart of reality, in our deep heart of reality, in your deep heart of what is real, you'll find yourself so close to those around you. And uh, you realize that your life is part of a miracle for this earth, for this world, for this life.
It's always a joy. Yeah, thank you so much. Gladly. Gladly. Well, how wonderful to talk with you about your reading of these poems, too, and the way that they've touched you. So thank you for that gift. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.